The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, webmaster and executive producer of the Spidey Radio Network. Thank you for listening to the show. This show is powered by spidey-dude.com. It's part of the general network that powers it. You can support this show, if you like, via patreon.com slash spideydudenetwork. You can also leave us a voicemail, 818-925-6631. We'll play that voicemail in a future episode. We also like to get emails every once in a while. Be sure to leave us an email, if you like, gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. At Spidey Network on Facebook is the general network Facebook page. But you can also follow this exclusive Twitter handle, at From Erie on Twitter. Follow us there to get show updates at both places. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you can always leave us a five-star review. And we will read all of that feedback in a future episode. Want to give a shout out before we get started also is to our two of our patrons, Scott and Venkman. Thank you for your support of this show and all the shows on the Spidey Radio Network. As always, we thank all of our guests and our host for this show. And with that, I turn it over. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, old fans, and new ones. We hope there's some new ones out there listening. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining me is my partner in crime as usual, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hey, everyone. And join us again to complete our discussion of the five-part pilot, Awakening, is the supervising producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles, the co-creator of the series, and the writer of the SLG Gargoyles and Gargoyles Bad Guys comic books, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And we have a lot to talk about. This is a really climactic episode. I almost don't know where to start, so I'll just start with the uh, with the raids. I feel like the raids give us a little bit of a glimpse into who each of these characters are. Brooklyn quickly takes charge at the tower. Broadway is the muscle. Lex is clearly a savant when it comes to tech, and even down in the what will soon be the labyrinth, Hudson shows he's a great strategist and tactician, because despite being the slowest to adapt, he recognizes a camera and realizes what he has to do. All true. I loved, I, this is, I think this is the episode where I just fell in love with Brooklyn. Like, he kind of gives you that complete Han Solo vibe now, like, he's the cool guy with quips and stuff, and, uh, and I just, this was definitely like where I was like, Oh, I like this one. Look, yeah. Look at that scene from the, uh, from the scientist perspective at the, uh, tower. There's this red skinned winged horned creature saying in front of him. that looks a little bit like Satan in this sinister voice saying, where's the disc. But I love the, like 
sorry, wrong floor. Like, you know, like, I just loved his, it really is where, like, I was like, oh, you clever little boy, you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I always thought it was an interesting choice to, Hudson spells it out here, the gargoyles are not bulletproof, when they very easily could have been. Even the original pitch, which you played at the gatherings and is available on the DVD, has Goliath getting shot with bullets bouncing right off of him, with you saying his stone-like hide makes him practically invulnerable. Yeah, we uh, we thought that um, pretty quickly, I think, um, to get rid of that sense of vulnerability. A, uh, because among other things, we wanted to create a contrast between when they were stoned during the day and, and flesh and blood at night. And B, you know, the truth is, if you shoot a bullet at a stone wall, you're going to take a pretty big dunk after the stone wall. So, you know, it was always kind of iffy. Uh, you know, the real point of that in the pitch is the second line, which is, you know, the stone-like hide makes them practically invulnerable everything but Elise's kindness you know I mean in other words you're exaggerating one point to make the other point um and then when it came to actually making the show I don't even think we I can't remember for sure but I don't even think we really considered the notion of them being um you know impervious to bullets or anything like that um it just you know we'd already shown that a sword could cut Goliath's hand and Obviously, they're tough and their hide is thick, but that doesn't make them bulletproof. It also means anytime they go out and patrol the city and protect people, they are taking their lives into their hands. I mean, even a street punk could get lucky. Yeah, in theory. And, and I think we, you know, like that sense of danger and, and sense of uh, heroic risk, for lack of a awkward term, you know, but taking these chances makes them more heroic because they aren't invulnerable, they're not bulletproof, um, something can happen, you know, fortunately, as with most television shows, everyone is shooting at them a pretty lousy shot. <laughs> fortunately. Although I think we did a, a better job than most at making those feet play. Um... Uh, you know, I rewatched the episode last night, and you know, it, it can be tough to hit a target like that. So when they're moving, so I, uh, I felt like we did an okay job at not making our bad guys, or or not even our bad guys, but our guys with guns, not just come off as completely incompetent, just more like completely caught off guard, and then. Um, and not ready to handle what they were facing. Right. And then we move Yeah, on. like how do you prepare how do you prep for this big thing with wings and a tail busting into your your business? Yeah. It knocks you back on your heels a little bit if nothing else. There's a part and then you gotta follow up. Yeah, there's a part of me that wonders how many of these people, just because of the fright of all this, would later join the quarrymen. Uh you know that's part of where the quarrymen clearly recruited from. I mean, Vinny showed you that, but 
Um, you know, the Quarrymen's a mixed bag, but we'll get to that down the road, I assume. Yes. Yes, we will. Meanwhile, frightening sequences on board the Air Fortress. I mean, Demona, I mean, they get the disc, and then she, for all intents and you know, I'm just saying, not even for all intents and purposes, you don't spell it out, but the bridge was on the underside of that Air Fortress. It went down quickly. I don't think anyone who was on that bridge got out alive. She just committed mass murder in a children's cartoon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about no one getting out alive. Uh, one, one imagines there's, uh, I mean, I'm not even trying to uh, soft sell it because it's clear to me from the way that thing crashes and the way we see people getting out that some people clearly must have died. Oh, definitely. Um, but I don't know about the idea that no one on the bridge got out alive. I mean, I assume there are some kind of safety protocols that allow some people to, to get out. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's clear that people died, um, there. And, uh, and in any case, even on a cartoon basis, you know, you can tell that she's pretty out of control. Mm-hmm. Like, like Goliath just had the conversation with her about, you know, killing in battle, but, you know, not like this kind of thing. And, and then the next thing she does is pulls the plug on this airship and it goes down. And he tries to stay. He wants to help get people out. I love that. And she pulls him out of there. I always, uh, we never quite got that pull out scene the way I wanted it. Uh, the idea was supposed to be that, you know, she's pulling on him and the whole thing tilts. And as it tilts, in essence, he's thrown out of there. So he doesn't really have a choice. Um, you know, he, he almost happens visually on screen like that, but not quite. <laughs> so I, but, and we worked on that scene and worked on that scene and worked on that scene um, in storyboard and in uh, animation and in post-production, and we never quite got it the way I wanted it. I don't know why it was so hard, um, but it can't pull off, but it was. Um, so we, I feel like we almost pull it off, that Goliath isn't just abandoning people, but I'm not sure we completely pull it off. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, we tried. We were trying really hard. Well, I never got the sense that he was abandoning people while watching this, so, I mean, you, pull, at least as far as this viewer is concerned, you pulled it off. Yeah, but that's that, good. <laughs> but that sequence is just so frightening. Even when it hits the river, yeah, we see people jumping off, and then we see more explosions going off, and I mentioned this a few episodes ago, but it seems almost like the antithesis of, say, G.I. Joe, where everyone parachutes out of the exploding planes and tanks safely, clearly. I mean, it's just, it feels more real. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was designed to do that, um, and at the same time get us past, you know, our own standards and practices, so that, you know, it's, the idea, in essence, is our standard, we're writing on layers. So for a young audience, they see people escaping and their minds go, oh, good, everyone got out. For an older audience, they see that some people are escaping, but they look at the scope of this thing and they go, oh, wow, not everyone got out. Um, and that's good. That's how we wanted it. You know, we wanted it to be able to play uh, both ways. And that I feel we were, 
we we pulled off more or less. Um, so. Mm-hmm. And then that leads us to them delivering the discs and what I would call one of the iconic scenes of the five-parter, Demona and Goliath's final almost civil conversation. I mean, uh, this is... Uh, I mean, I know she starts shooting at him later, but it almost feels like this is where it comes to an end. That's when she and she realizes she can't control Goliath. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, forget it, I'm going to go see my friend Elisa. And she's like, well, this isn't going the way I planned. And Xanatos at the same time is going, well, this isn't going the way I planned. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's now been in this world, I mean, not very long, but long enough to have made a few evaluations. And one of the evaluations is is that Elisa saved his life and he's a worthwhile person and worthwhile to have as a friend. But I think the key thing is he is not on board with what Demona has done over the last 20 minutes or 30 minutes from his point of view. And, and so him going to see Elisa is not just about, Oh, she's a good person. I said, I'd meet her. I'm going to go meet her. It's about him being put off by Demona and needing some space from her which Demona does not want to give him at that moment. And so he says, you know, he is preaching this um, sermon of vengeance that he's already finding exhausting and wrong, but I think more exhausting than wrong. <laughs> um, and so that line, I cannot make war on an entire world, which Keith reads so beautifully, um, was such weariness and um, pain um, is really terrific. And then he follows that up with, doesn't Xanatos prove that some humans can be trustworthy or something like that, right? Of course, you know, Demona knows Xanatos proves nothing of the sort. (laughs) Um, And so his argument, you know, for obvious reasons, backfires, with her because she knows it's not true, but she, of course she can't admit that. So he's just going, uh, well, other than him, we shouldn't trust anybody. And he's like, uh, and then he comes out and says that, you know, you said I'd change. Uh, I feel like you're the one change. and you're hard and unforgiving. And it, it's her expression in that moment that I think really kills me it, because then we cut away to him. But in that moment, when he says hard and unforgiving, we're on her. And you see this instant when that strikes her. And you wonder, is this going to make her stop and think? But before she can, he is so frustrated that he says, I'm going to go see my friend and leave. So you wonder, I wonder, if he had stayed and said, you know, try to find, let's both try to find where we used to be. Would that have made a difference? And I don't think, I think the ultimate answer is no, but, but I think there was a moment there. And then the moment's gone. And when he is, when he flies away, that's it. However, 
Owen is sitting there going, hey, all we have to do is wait a few hours and we can just smash these guys and not worry about it, right? And in these early days, Xanatos is feeling like, oh, I can't control them. Uh, okay, maybe, yeah, we do just need to get rid of them. I don't need them anymore. I got my robot. Um, but I think what's interesting is, is, is Demona is perfectly okay with killing them. She's not okay with smashing them when they're stoned. I think her line about, hey, we need to test these robots is crap. I don't think... She just doesn't want to uh, crush them while they're stoned. Yeah, I think that is, you know, whole, you know, 10 lifetimes worth of PTSD, right? You know what I mean? It's just that she can't face. She can crush humans when they're stoned. That's great. That feels like revenge. Yeah. Right. That's that's, uh, what they earned and deserve. But she can't do that to a gargoyle. Which doesn't mean she can't kill the gargoyles. But she cannot hit them when they're so. So is it like a like at least they're getting a fighting chance kind of thing, or I don't even know if it's that. I literally think there's so much trauma associated with the massacre when they were yeah. stoned that I just think the prospect of that is more than she can get her head around. It doesn't matter how pragmatic it is. She cannot get her head around these helpless gargoyles, many of whom she cared about and loved and took care of a thousand years ago, being smashed in part because of her, which, of course, you know, she rarely admits to herself, but deep down knows. And if that happened again, it would just be more guilt and more blame. And I think that using the robot, that's just so alien to that, 10th century experience that she can live with that and deal with that. She can get her head around that, but she can't get her head around doing what Hakon did. Yeah, that makes sense. That's um, a bridge. That's a bridge too far. Yeah. I was the, the whole time I would like, I was watching it going, if she just hadn't been so heavy handed, if she had just eased Goliath into it, would it have been a different story as well? Like if she had not just been ready to kill everybody that she came across, how much longer before Goliath would have caught up and and changed his mind about her? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Yeah, I tend to think that if she had not behaved that way on the airship, Goliath would not have even remembered his appointment with Elisa because he would have been off somewhere, uh, well, let's keep it clean, but you know what I mean. With his mates. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's true. I think long term, um, Goliath and Demona were not right for each other even a thousand years ago. Um, so I think long term, I don't know that it would have worked out, um, or that she could have truly brought Goliath over as far to her side as she wanted and needed him to be, but. I do think it could have lasted longer if he had been subtler. Um, and I do think that, as usual with Demona, her worst enemy is Demona, not anybody else. That's one of the herself. things I absolutely love her, about her as a villain. Me is, too. Is she is her own worst enemy, and she just refuses to accept it, and everybody else is at fault, and... 
I, I really just love that depth of her. Yeah. It's a fun thing about her. Very, very much. <laughs> Tragic and fun and all that. Fun. Fun. So fun. And that, and then we have another great scene, Goliath and Elisa on the rooftop. And I like that Elisa's questioning what happened. She's not accusing him of not being who he presented himself to be. She generally has questions about what he was doing and why. And then she explains to him what's really going on. And he makes a choice. Yeah, and she's, and, but she's not, she's not, you know, babying him either. She's being tough, but she still uses the, her tenderness to get through to him. Yeah, I mean, I think that the two of them have a connection that was uh, not instantaneous, obviously, because, but I think, you know, that night they spent um, touring the city and then her act of saving him um, the next day, you know, uh, I think that really affected him and, and her. And so they have a connection there that, um, even with all their history, Demona and Goliath don't still have. And so Demona is basically saying, just trust me, this is the situation you don't know. Um, but of course she's hiding all this information, her alliance with Janitos, the fact that she didn't just wake up after him, you know, but rather has been awake for a thousand years. You know, she's keeping all this from him. So it, it makes that connection almost impossible to, to play through into anything deep because anything that goes deeper than the surface, he's blocking with lies. But Elise is just open. And so that connection um, feels very real. And thus Elisa says, you know, you can't trust Xanatos, but you can trust me. And one could sit there and argue, yeah, why? Why is that? Xanatos uh, saved us from a thousand years of sleep. Okay, yeah, you saved me too, but why, why should I trust you over him? And it's just, you know, it's a feeling. At the end of the day, it's a feeling. Instincts. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's got reasons, and the reasons are logical. They're logical because they're true. But he doesn't know. She could be, you know, at least in theory, given what he knows about the world at this point, he has no idea whether or not what she's saying is true. She could have taken that picture of a scarab, which could have been something innocuous, and said, uh, you know, and said, uh, oh, it was created by the Illuminati, this ancient organism. I mean, she could have said anything, right? Um but I mean, she happens to be telling him the truth, but he doesn't know that. He just feels that it is the truth, and he trusts her. Um, and so, yeah, it's instinct. It's it, it, however you want to phrase it. It just cuts through all the doubt, and and suddenly, you know, he knows he's been used. And then, of course, it all goes to hell because of the steel coin. I love the Steel Clan. There's just something so cool about them. I mean, granted, there's better villains throughout the course of the series, but that name is cool. They've got cool designs. The the razor sharp wings. They made a really good first impression. Yeah, the animation on them was really pretty great too. That whole air battle. That whole air battle was just so well choreographed and and so well like it. It really, I, I just love it. It's just so beautifully done. 
Of course, you know, like one thing I noticed is like there's steel instead of stone, and this is supposed to be like a big, you know, plus, and then immediately Goliath crushes the very first one he comes across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's clear that uh, Xanatos overestimated them. Yes. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, um, just a little bit. They had some sword like cuts to it like butter. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. <laughs> so it's but it's still a fun climactic battle to the five parter. You really feel like that goes well. And then of course, um, even when they're defeated, it's all trumped by Demona with a giant laser bazooka or whatever the hell oh, that thing there's was. A, there's uh-huh. no laser in there. That was a rocket launcher. <laughs> so it was, uh, so that it, it's just, you know, a fun fight. Uh, it is. And I think part of what helps it is that it's not the climax because the climax, like you said, is Goliath's confrontation with Demona on the parapets. It's an emotional climax more so than an action climax. Not that there isn't any, even a little bit of action there, but it's really... Dude, Marina just owned that whole scene. Yes. But she goes from raging angry to this soft, pleading, you know, one last chance to try to get him, and then, no, card is stone again. Like, she's not doing it. And it's just... She, it's, it was quite the performance. I absolutely love it. I'm going to say this. Every time Marina says that she doesn't think she's good at voice acting, I just want to play that sequence for her because she is. <laughs> I disagree with her on that. I almost equate her in some ways. Maybe this is going, going a bit overboard since she's not changing her voice the way he does. But it's like Mark Hamill, going from Luke Skywalker to the Joker, she went from Deanna Troy to Demona. I think if Marina says that, what Marina's talking about really is a couple things. And what she means is, is that she's not, um, and no one expects her to be, but she's not, you know, a Jeff Bennett or, uh, Jim Cummings who can do 63 different voices. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In other words, and she also truly, truly hates grunting um, <laughs> all that all that stuff. Uh, don't we all she really doesn't like doing that aspect of it um but she is a phenomenal voice actor without a doubt um and you know her work is demona is uh i you know i think seminal i think it's really uh great i mean it, it's fun to talk about uh, Deanna and Demona uh, as, you know, in opposition to each other. And what's really fun is, you know, is Marina always saying, yeah, I'm actually way more like Demona than I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, and that's just so much fun for me. But of course, when we cast her in it, we didn't know her as a person yet. You know, um, she just hit it out of the park as Demona and um, it's only over time that you begin to see the connection but uh, but once you get to know her you get it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and by the way Marina is lovely Uh, uh, oh absolutely yeah funny as hell and so great to be with um, without a doubt but But she suffers uh, no fools right exactly Mm -hmm. (laughs) I respect and, uh, that. Yeah, and so, but, you know, it was a revelation to us because we only, 
I mean, obviously Marina had done other things, but as a group, we only knew her as Deanna Troy. We didn't know her as uh, any other characters, really, other than that. And so Demona seemed like such a departure, and yet, you know, she just owned that role so much. Um, and in a very, in much the same way, I mean, uh, Jonathan really owns Xanatos. I mean, and you can see it here. He's got that line where the other guard, you know, where Goliath and Demona are confronting each other over the barrel of her rocket launcher, and the other gargoyles start to make a move, and Xanatos is like, um, let's just let them play out their little drama, shall we? You know, and it's just like, Jonathan is so smooth with that line. You know, it's not about, hey, I'm evil, and it's not about, hey, uh, you know, I'm threatening you. It's about, I want to see where this goes. This is entertaining me, you know? Um, it is a level of suavity. I don't even know how, what, I don't even have the words for it, but his villainy so transcends villainy. You know, it just isn't um, anything you'd expect. And he just slides through it, and it is really... <laughs> Incredible. And so the two of them playing off each other, obviously, is fun because of their history. But the fact of the matter is, is that stylistically, the two characters are very different. And they both just really captured that. And then on top of that, you've got Keith anchoring the whole show, right? And just the pain um, that he's got, the pain that Demona's got, you know, that line you trusted me once, you loved me once after a thousand years of solitude, which of course we stole from the title of hundred years of solitude. Right. Um, you know, but it's such a great line. Uh, and then he just, uh, gives her nothing. And then it's like, okay, bitch, he says, um, <laughs> um, not so many words. Um, I have a name too, Goliath. And, you know, it was funny watching this here. Again, I had kind of forgotten that we didn't already know her name until this moment. That um, an audience watching this for the first time, unless they've like studied the credits, doesn't really know this character's name until the end of the fifth episode of this five-parter. Um, when she announces that the humans named her Demona. And um, I always was like, wow, I, I mean, I was just like forgot that that was a revelation. But of course it is. Uh, and, and I love that she's like starting to tip tip off that she hasn't wasn't in stone. She didn't just wake up right after them. Like, no, I, a long time ago they gave me this name, and uh, a thousand years of solitude. Like she's, she's starting to give away that you know, it's all over. Like this whole game that she was playing is over, and I've been here for a thousand years, miserable. Mm-hmm. What I love also about that scene, the choreography, she's walking through red smoke and flame. She's got that flame-like hair. Her eyes are burning red and she practically announces that her name is demon it couldn't be more on the nose and yet it's perfect i really took attention to that the first time i saw it i it's a reaction that i remember 
And it's such an emotional scene, even in the build-up. I like that you're not afraid to show Goliath's emotional vulnerabilities. He tears up, and I find that there's some shows out there that would be afraid to let the hero get that emotional on screen. They would be afraid of alienating their target audience of young boys. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it... I mean, I I guess that's a fear that some people might have, but I, you know, I'm never worried about it. You know, if you earned it you've earned it um if you haven't you shouldn't be doing it but you know clearly over the course of four and two-thirds episodes we'd put goliath through enough that you could get him to that point um and yet you know in the end of the day he stands up you know he's not you know he's learned enough to know that that gun she's pointing at him isn't a toy he knows what he's up against but um, there's something, you know, he won't budge on. And, um, and then, you know, also her revelation is so incredibly painful. She, in fact, was the reason that all this happened. Um, or at least a big part of that reason is crushing. him, uh, And yet he doesn't let it crush him. And that's sort of the, heroism of Goliath. I mean, there are the obvious things, like he's a big, strong guy, and he, but, you know, obviously for me, um, the true heroism of Goliath is the crushing things he's been through that he doesn't allow to crush him. Whereas she did allow them to crush her, which we'll see more of when we get to City of Stone. Yeah, I mean, she found her strength a different way, probably a less healthy way, but... (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, uh, there's just uh, a righteousness to Goliath. And I'm not usually too fond of that word because most of the people who claim righteousness, generally, in my opinion, don't have any of it. But uh, I think Goliath does um, in a real way. Not always. He can be wrong. And usually the great thing about him is that when he's wrong, he admits it. You know, most of the time... You know, there's a, that, you know, he chooses the right side and he um, stands by what he believes in and um, and that's something. He does the right thing. He has this great line that he says at conventions and stuff where people ask him about Goliath and he says, Goliath's who I want to be when I grow up. Well, don't we all? Mm-hmm. Can I get please? Thank you. And or Lisa, who comes in and saves Goliath's life again. Love it. Yeah. Yep. Lisa, Lisa to the rescue. And then he saves her. It's the, the perfect dichotomy. I do have to ask a question, though. Which yeah. This has been a subject of debate in the fandom, especially consider, considering what we learn about Demona later. Does she correct herself in midair and fly off, or does she pancake on the street or some rooftop somewhere and then just heal? I think she, I think she flew off. Um, I, and that's another scene that I kept trying to get um, to play in such a way that Goliath didn't have the option of flying down a second time. That, you know, that 
and again, it's a scene where we almost achieve it and we don't quite achieve it for me anyway. Yeah. The idea was supposed to be that, that, you know, there's a fog layer or something and she sort of falls beneath the fog layer. So he loses all sight of her between the, the wreckage and the, and the fog or the clouds or whatever. And the fact of the matter is, is that when we're looking at her, we can still see her. It drives me crazy because if you're Goliath, the Goliath that we know, you feel like, okay, so why isn't he jumping down again to go try and help her? And there's no way he could catch up to her at this point, but why isn't he trying? And so that's another scene for me, like him spilling out of the cyberbiotics ship that, um, where I'm like, we almost got what I was looking for. We didn't quite get what, um, if it makes you feel uh, better, we don't need to have a big discussion about the movie cut now. We did last time, but the movie cut, as soon as he lands on the back in the tower and puts Lisa down and turns, she's gone. So you sort of got the cut you were looking for there. I see. That's probably why. Yeah. But Frank cuts a five-parter, and I cut the movie version because they had to be cut simultaneously. So we couldn't, uh, we didn't have time to um, both do, do both. Do, yeah, both do them. Right. Um, so that may not have been as big a priority for him as it was for me. Um, but yeah, every time I see that, I'm like, uh, almost not quite. I think, you know, at that stage in their lives, he's saving Elisa because Elisa has no wing. So obviously there's no way she can save herself. Whereas there's at least the hope that Demona can but then the idea would be that we've got to make it look as if it's possible that Demona's so beat up by the wreckage and the explosion that she might not be able to save herself. Um, and yet you've got to feel like Goliath doesn't have the option to try after saving Elisa. And it's almost worked. Not really. Hmm. So, you know, it, that's the thing about, you know, looking at stuff, uh, the other day, uh, HBO Max cut a trailer that sort of was like a primer on season one of Young Justice. And, um, and so they showed it to us and we're looking at the footage and Brandon and I are both like going, oh, season one footage, not great. It's <laughs> 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 like, oh, that's not painful to look at. Um, and you know, at the time we just sort of lived with it, I guess, uh, or didn't realize it could be better or something. I don't know, but we probably knew, but just chose to live with it. Cause what option did we have? Artists but, uh, are always also, the you know, that's the thing. Critics. Anytime you go back and look at, anytime you go back and look at your old stuff, you know, I, I and I'm pretty generous towards my old stuff. I'm fond of it. Like I am, you know, old relatives or something, but, uh, um, but still, I, I, I'm always seeing. Oh, we didn't quite get that done, or that was a mistake, or ooh, that does not look good. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it can be sort of painful to go back, even though I am quite fond of all these shows and all these episodes. And then we get another great scene right after where Goliath could kill Xanatos, is really tempted to kill Xanatos, and then doesn't kill Xanatos. And he is cool as a cucumber yeah. throughout the whole thing. 
Yeah, I love Xanatos. You know, without me, he'd still be gathering moss line. But my favorite thing in that scene is Hudson's line. Because Hudson, yeah. Hudson says to Goliath, Elisa's like pleading with him, don't do it. You know, you'll, you're just like Demona. And Hudson asks this question, is that what you want? And I think Hudson would be okay if the answer is yes, that's what I want. All right, then drop it. You know, um, you know, in other words, Hudson's saying, I want you to make a choice here. I don't want you to just act impulsively. But if you choose to drop him, you're our leader. I'm with you. You know, um, and I think Hudson would be just fine with Goliath dropping Xanatos. After Goliath chooses not to, Hudson says something like, um, you know, I think he did the right thing. Um, mm-hmm. But but in that moment, I don't, you know, Elisa's clearly on one side of the issue. But I don't think Hudson is. I think Hudson is legitimately saying, what is it you want to do? And go for it, you know. Just think about Just, it first. You know, yeah. 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 And he did do the right thing. Some people might debate, well, considering all the things Xantos is going to do to them in the short term later, did Goliath make the right choice? But long term, the answer is yes. And this might be a weird comparison, but I'm reminded of Gandalf's line to Frodo about Gollum. Granted, Xantos is nothing like Gollum, but Bilbo not killing Gollum saved Middle-earth from Sauron later, whereas um, Goliath not dropping Xanatos now saves their asses at the end of Hunter's Moon. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, the idea, of course, is that they're always, uh, everything connects, you know, nothing's in a vacuum. There are always consequences, and they're hard to predict. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's part of the fun of it. Xanatos' mm-hmm. well, line about collecting moss, though, always makes me be like, yeah, but you did it already, so <laughs> I don't need you anymore. Like, <laughs> okay, good for you, but I'm still going to drop you. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of make you wonder, though, if like he had a plan B, like Owen is waiting with a net or something. <laughs> maybe, maybe. With some maybe. kind of giant butterfly net you know that you feel like he's so confident did Santos have a plan b for getting dropped from the top of a building did he if no um, one did it's even if he, even if, mm-hmm. yeah but even if he didn't you feel like he's gonna play it as if he did yeah like it's all pretty pointless because you know i'm prepared and the thing is is this early in the show i don't think we knew Xanatos well enough to know that He's always prepared, but in hindsight, it kind of feels that way. At least, well, he's definitely not the type that's going to plead for his life. Oh. You know, he's. Right. You're also showing that he's not going to. You know, oh God, please don't drop me. Nope. You know, he's like, all right, this is happening. And this five-parter is ultimately about Goliath coming back to see the world in shades of gray. He goes from being a gargoyle ahead of his time, looking at the big picture, seeing things in shades of gray, to almost a black-and-white, Demona-esque viewpoint of the world until Elisa brings him back out of it. And, that, and to a sense, Demona does too, because he it could have been easy for him to say, okay, human's bad, gargoyle's good, and his greatest enemy right now is a gargoyle, and his greatest ally is a human. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we had to get 
Goliath, who's basically an optimist, um, back to that place of optimism. I don't think we do it until the end of the season, frankly, uh, on purpose. I mean, I don't think the, the full transformation happens or whole reclamation or whatever word you want to use um, happens until um, the end of episode 13. But this obviously, we had to at least get him off this notion that, um, you know, human's evil. Um, and Jamona unintentionally does that for him because, you know, they're good and evil and, you know, the humans and gargoyles alike. Um, and sees the proof of it. It was a major step towards getting Goliath back to being the gargoyle that he wanted to be, needed to be. Um, and, uh, but it's only a step in the journey. There's eight more steps <laughs> mm-hmm. to get from episode five to 13. <laughs> yes. Five plus eight is 13. Yeah. Eight more steps. Um, and looking back at this, I keep calling this a beautiful pilot because it was. Back then, I mean, Disney almost always had great pilots, but a lot of shows, even shows I really liked back then, I found that their pilots were often weak. They felt artificial. Okay, let's bring the characters together, introduce the situation to the point where it almost feels forced. I mean, five episodes here gave you enough time to help everything breathe, and it was just such a well-done pilot, and... um like I keep saying, there's shows that I adore from that era that I look at and I can say their pilots are atrocious. This is one of the series' heights, and yet there's even better to come. Uh, I hope so. And <laughs> and uh, this is a question I think we should ask, but you weren't you were credited on the movie, but you weren't cre- credited on the five-part pilot that has caused some confusion around people who don't know the series or the fandom too well and to kind of second-guess your involvement because it's clear from all the memos and everything that you were deeply involved with this five-part pilot. So um, what was the deal there? Well, uh, the deal there was that um, executives weren't allowed, and I think rightly, uh, but in those days, uh, Disney executives weren't allowed to take credit. And the five-part pilot was done before uh, I got permission to move over to be uh, a producer on the show. I, I was doing the exact same job, but um, I wasn't officially uh, Frank's partner uh, until uh, after the pilot had dipped. And then in post, Again, I was working on the movie version, and Frank was working on the five-part episode, so I think it was everyone's idea of a compromise. I don't mean Frank. I mean, like, my boss's idea of a compromise was, all right, let's put his name on the movie version because he posted that. Because the post took, takes place, obviously, like, you know, months later. So by that time, I was a producer, but I hadn't been when the first five episodes was yet. But I posted the movie version alone, so I got a credit on that. I didn't post these five episodes. I mean, I was at the mix, the sound mix, but I wasn't editing them. Um, And so uh, it was decided um, that I wouldn't get credit on any of them. Um, And I was fine with that at the time. In hindsight, um, I kind of regret it because it's, 
it has created uh, confusion and, for some reason, controversy. Um, uh, not with any of us who worked on the show, but, um, you know, I've seen fans sort of accuse me of credit grubbing on a project I got no credit on. And that's painful to me a little. Um, and I see why they say that, but it's just based on not knowing what's going on uh, back then behind the scenes. Uh, I, again, I uh, feel like I that Paul Lacey and I should share story credit on these five parts, on this five-part episode. Uh, I'm not saying we could get sole credit, but I feel like, frankly, we should share it with Michael Reeves and um, nothing against Eric Luke, but I don't feel like any of that story was really his. In essence, Eric got the credit because we, Paul and I couldn't take the credit because we were executives and Michael was handed a big chunk of, you know, at least the major beats of that story. So he couldn't get sole credit on it. Um, and so again, you know, I kind of regret um, that I wasn't more of a pain, uh, that I didn't, you know, if I wasn't more of a squeaky wheel saying, hey, that's not fair, I should get credit on this, only for historical reasons. Um, but at the time, it was like, yeah, I don't care. This is also the time when I think cartoon uh, series didn't quite credit or mention creators. It wasn't really until Batman the Animated Series when Bruce Tim started making the rounds, doing interviews and press. And I don't know if that's true. I just think that, you know, there had been a, a bit of a history at Disney when I was there of certain individuals, I'm not going to say who, but certain individuals who would take a writer's script and change the title and then take shared credit on the script. And it was enough of a problem that um, early days when I was an executive there, um, Gary Kreisel sort of tasked me with coming up with policy for credit, uh, which I did um, at Disney TV Animation. And among the policy points that I laid out, which bit me in the ass years later, was executives don't get credit. Um, and that was one that Gary was very big on. He didn't take uh, credit on any of the shows. Um, uh, you know, in one sense, he didn't take it because, of course, he got credit for all of it from a business standpoint. They were all done under his. All those Disney afternoon shows were done under his agent. Um, but he didn't feel the need to have his credit on screen. He didn't feel the need to take away from the people who made the show. And so I think that was a good, right thing. But in the specific case of these five episodes of Gargoyles, I did all the work of a producer um, and got zero credit for them on screen. And again, at the time, I, it, that didn't bother me at all because overall I thought, well, I'm getting my shot at producing this show. My credit shows up starting with, I forget what episode is it, six? Next I can't one. even remember yeah. now. The very next one. Yeah. So my credit starts with six, and I didn't post these five. Um, Frank did, so fine. I was okay with it. And the writing credit was a bit more annoying, but uh, I would have been fine sharing it with Eric and Michael or just with Michael, obviously with Paul, because it was, it was me and Paul who came up with the original story 
which we gave to Eric, in which Eric's version was then given to Michael, and then Michael made, you know, Michael deserved to share that story credit, without a doubt. But um, uh, the story came from Paul and I, and so I wish that Paul and I had credit on the first story uh, with Eric and Michael, um, but we don't, and that's life. Um, but, you know, it does sometimes, uh, occasionally some one online or other will accuse me of stealing credit and, and that's upsetting. Um, I, I don't think of myself as a credit grubber in general. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think of myself that way. I like to think I'm always pretty generous about sharing credit with all the people I work with. Um, I've got a big mouth and I do good interviews, I guess. So um, sometimes I get more credit than I deserve. I definitely feel like Frank doesn't get enough credit for uh, Gargoyles. Michael Reeves doesn't get enough credit for Gargoyles. Vic Cook doesn't get enough credit for Spectacular Spider-Man. Without a doubt, Brandon Vietti does not get enough credit for Young Justice. And I've said that over and over again on all those shows. Um, But, you know, every once in a while I say, but I did do this. And then sometimes the fan will go, no, you didn't. And it's just like, uh, (laughs) and so that makes me a little, but, um, uh, you know, there's ample evidence to show and, you know, and no one who worked on the show has ever contradicted me. It's not like Michael Reeves either before or after, um, illness sort of quieted him, um, ever. And we appeared at conventions together ever, you know, we ever disagreeing about who did what on the show. We never did. Um, and so it, it can be hurtful, I'll say, but you know, I'm a big boy, whatever. Um, obviously I'm not that big a boy cause I've just been bitching about it for 10 minutes. But, uh, <laughs> well, um, you're allowed and hopefully we'll have some other people, some other collaborators from the show on as well to tell their stories with you and, We'll see what happens as we move forward. But um, I remember when this five-part pilot ended, the first time I, I watched it, I wasn't sure if it was going to continue. There was immediately a commercial that said, Bonkers is returning next week. And I said, oh, is that it? Was that just a miniseries? Well, that was really cool. And then right after that, a commercial came on advertising new episodes every Friday. And I was jazzed. I couldn't wait to see what came next. Jen, what, do you remember your initial... Reactions oh, yeah, to my, of all this? I thought it was a miniseries. I totally thought it was a miniseries. I didn't think it was going to continue on. And so, yeah, definitely remember those commercials and be like, yes, more, please. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew it wasn't a miniseries. <laughs> well, I would hope so. <laughs> I, I was never fooled. It seems like we're coming up on the hour and Greg... Jen, do you both have anything you would like to plug before we conclude this? Um, I just, you know, point you to my website, uh, heyassbutt.com. I've got an Etsy store, and I've got uh, Redbubble, and um, hopefully some more gargoyle stuff will be going up soon. Uh, and I'm uh, not surprisingly promoting Young Justice Phantoms on HBO Max. Um, new episodes every Thursday uh, through the end of December, uh, and then uh, we'll take a couple months off and come back in the spring for the back 13 episodes. Um, uh, we, you know, are, have not gotten to pick up for season five, so if you want to see more uh, Young Justice, you got to just 
keep binging YJ on HBO Max. Best way to get it back. I can be reached uh, on Twitter at Greg underscore Weissman, W-E-I-S-M-A-N. Or you can also uh, go to my website, AskGregWeissman.com. And that's where you'll find me where I've been answering questions about gargoyles and other things for 20 plus years now. I was going to say decades. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when it first opened. Yeah. Hi, John. Wow. Hi, John. It's always been there. So long. Well, once again, I'd like to thank you both for everything you've done. We made it through the five-part pilot, this beautiful pilot. I cannot wait to see where we go from here on out. We will eventually be back with Greg Wiseman to discuss the thrill of the hunt. We may have another surprise there as well. And we also have other kinds of podcasts that are planned moving forward that are not just discussions with the creative forces involved, even though, don't worry, we plan to have plenty of those moving forward. So... Thank you for listening to us. I hope you've enjoyed Voices from the Eerie. And keep listening. We're only going to get better from here. still be gathering moss.